I really did very little research for this show. I decided that because the film is basically about people who drink too much that I'd commit to the research process in that way. Hello and welcome to Celluloid Junkies. I am Luke Kane. I am joined by Damien Heath. Hello. And Cassandra Kane. Hello. You sounded so much more excited saying Cass's name. Well, there's a reason for that, Damien, but let's not dwell on it, shall we? Is that because we're locked down together? Yeah, I've just had enough of you. Whereas Cass is a new shiny object. Fair enough. Okay, this month we are heading out to Reno, Nevada to go mustanging with three dear sweet dead men in John Huston's The Misfits. I just met me a girl sweet enough to eat. Fine looking woman. How'd he do? I have an empty house out in the country just beyond Hawleyville. It's all yours if you want some peace and quiet before you go back. Gee, goes on forever. There's no better place to be. You couldn't find better company either. You're a real beautiful woman. You think you could break away from this paradise long enough to do a little mustanging? Horses? We'd have to pick up another man. Well, better than wages, ain't it? Well, anything's better than wages. It's like a dream. Well, we'll never see this again in history, you know. You kill him? Contact! In the spring of 1956, playwright Arthur Miller flew to Nevada and rented a cabin at Pyramid Lake. He was there to take advantage of lax Nevadan laws and get a quickie divorce from his college sweetheart and wife of 16 years, Mary Slattery. Mary was a good woman, a perfect fit for Miller. Bright, determined and idealistic, she supported the family while Arthur wrote his early plays, and the decision to end things had rested heavy on him. It may never have come had his success not put him in the path of the most famous screen siren in the world, Marilyn Monroe. Miller met Marilyn in 1951 while she was filming As Young As You Feel, and they began exchanging letters. They met again in 1955, which is when the affair escalated. It is just that I believe I should really die if I ever lost you, Miller wrote to her. It is as if we were born on the same morning when no other life existed on this earth. To get a divorce, a person had to reside in Nevada for six weeks. Bored and guilty, Miller had nothing to do but notice the locals who called the desert home. Free-spirited cowboys, middle-aged loners and oddballs barely making a living on the fringe of the world, clinging to the talons of a lost era. He wrote a short story, which would eventually be published in October 1957. By then, he and Monroe would be married a year and living in New York. He was facing charges for refusing to name names before the McCarthy hearings. She'd had two miscarriages and was already regretting her third marriage. The idea to adapt Miller's short story into a screenplay came from Sam Shaw, an early photographer friend of Marilyn's. At the time, Marilyn was locked in a power struggle with 20th Century Fox. She wanted to broaden her appeal as an actress in more serious parts. Fox was determined to continue casting her as the sexy flake in lightweight comedies. Feeling helpless, Miller wrote the movie with a serious part in mind for Marilyn. He presented his wife with the finished screenplay after a third miscarriage, in what must have felt to Marilyn like the saddest consolation prize ever. Monroe reacted to the script with a mixture of fear and betrayal. Miller noted that although she laughed a few times at the dialogue between the cowboys, she seemed to withhold full commitment to playing Rosalind. It isn't difficult to understand why. 
Watching the Misfits today, it's hard to see Roslyn as anyone but Marilyn Monroe. Not the luscious, ditzy sex kitten that Fox promoted, but Monroe as she really was. The daughter of an absentee mother who had never finished high school, who couldn't handle seeing anything in pain, whose beauty was so remarkable that she found herself relentlessly pursued by men, incapable of seeing past it. In the end, Marilyn slash Roslyn falls for the older and more philosophical of the three cowboys, someone who can double as a kind of father figure. The similarities to Marilyn were not opaque, and she must have worried about putting so much of herself up on the screen, especially for the American press, who for years had regarded Marilyn as an uneducated non-actress whose only dubious talent was her sex appeal. But The Misfits presented Marilyn with a serious part in a dramatic film, something she wasn't being offered by Fox. When Miller managed to wrangle John Huston to direct, the man who'd been so nurturing on her first film, The Asphalt Jungle, Monroe signed up. The Misfits was produced by Frank Perry for Seven Arts Productions, a subsidiary of United Artists. It was the right studio for a literate black and white film that was, even from the outset, more an artistic than a commercial exercise. The timing was good for Houston, who was struggling to get his biopic of Sigmund Freud off the ground. Once Lou Wasserman, the powerful head of MCA who represented both Miller and Monroe, threw his weight behind the project, everyone wanted a piece of the misfits. In November 1959, Miller met with Clark Gable to discuss the role of Langland. The king of Hollywood, who'd made Rhett Butler an iconic romantic hero, was not sure he understood the screenplay. Was it a western or some kind of new age psychodrama? Miller explained that it was sort of an Eastern Western. Gable would never see the finished film or his performance in it, which many considered to be his best. The day after shooting wrapped, he suffered a heart attack and was admitted to hospital. 12 days later, a second heart attack ended his life on November 16, 1960. The producers had a hard time getting insurance for their first choice to play Purse, Langland's main rival for Rosalind's affections. Montgomery Clift was a method-trained actor who'd caused a sensation in the late 40s with star-making roles in three back-to-back -back hits, The Search, Red River, and The Heiress. Chiseled and lean, with a sexually ambiguous intensity, Clift was the first screen rebel, and it was a title he earned. At a time when actors were still at the mercy of the studio system, Clift refused lucrative offers and instead established himself as a major box office draw one film at a time, on his own terms. Clift was a perfectionist who had a reputation for being impulsive and temperamental. When Hitchcock was asked if he'd had any trouble with Clift on the set of I Confess, the master of suspense paused characteristically and said, well, yes. On May 12, 1956, when Clift was halfway through shooting Raintree County with Elizabeth Taylor, a horrific car accident left him disfigured, bedridden, and in chronic pain. He was 36 years old. The road to recovery was a long and humiliating one, with gossip columnists running before and after shots that negatively compared how his new face compared with his old one. His dependence upon pills and alcohol increased. The final 10 years of his life after the crash were famously described by acting coach Robert Lewis as the longest suicide in Hollywood history. On July 23, 1966, Clift would die of a heart attack, caused in part by prolonged substance abuse. The last person to see Clift alive was his private nurse, Lorenzo James. The night that he died, James mentioned that they were playing The Misfits on television in case Clift cared to watch it. Absolutely not, he replied. They are the last words he is known to have said. Principal photography on The Misfits began on the 18th of July 1960 in Reno on a $3.5 million budget. The 50-day shoot stretched to 90. The production plagued with injuries, sweltering temperatures, sudden location changes, and an often inebriated director at the helm. But the biggest problem was easily Marilyn Monroe. Houston's attempts to direct his leading lady proved problematic. Marilyn would nod evasively to whatever he said, then hold everyone up as she conferred in whispers with her acting coach, Paula Strasberg. Paula was the wife of Lee Strasberg, founder of the Actors Studio, and a contentious figure on the Misfits set. Lee had taken an immediate interest in Marilyn when she began attending his classes in 1955. By then she was already a major star, struggling with mental illness, substance abuse, and a crippling sense of inadequacy. The Strasbergs worked to make themselves indispensable to her. Paula had been under contract as Marilyn's coach ever since the filming of Bus Stop in 1956, and she performed the same function on the Misfits set 
as she did on every Marilyn set. She fed the actress's insecurities and acted as the heavy when Marilyn was going to be late, which was almost every day, if she showed up to set at all. That an intelligent and successful artist like Monroe could allow herself to be subjugated by a person who, as Arthur Miller put it, wove fantasies around her, probably says more about her mental state than anything else. When Paula tried to give the Oscar-winning director tips about how he could better direct Marilyn, Houston's reaction was ironic. According to Miller, he would listen to everything she had to tell him with a seriousness so profound as to be ludicrous. The frustrated director tried to be accommodating, pushing the shooting start time back an hour each day. Meanwhile, the Monroe-Miller marriage continued to disintegrate. Production stalled on August 27th after Marilyn checked into a Los Angeles clinic, suffering from exhaustion. Shooting wrapped on 4th of November 1960, a half a million dollars over budget. Seven days later, Monroe and Miller announced their plans to separate. In July 1961, Marilyn would fly to Mexico, rather than Nevada, to obtain the divorce. Two years later, she would be dead, the victim of a suspected drug overdose. Miller did not attend the funeral, noting she won't be there. So, Damien, what did you, uh, what did you think of The Misfits? When did you see it? I thought I had seen The Misfits before, but watching it for this podcast, I realised that I had either seen a part of it or seen none of it at all. So, really, I watched it for the first time about a month, a month and a half ago. And I really liked it. I mean, I've seen a fair few John Huston movies, but mostly his stuff from the 40s. Not so familiar with his, I guess, middle career, which is where the misfits would sit. And the Marilyn Monroe movies that I've seen, like Niagara and um, How to Marry a Millionaire and those kinds of movies are obviously very different from the misfits. I've seen a few Montgomery Cliffs uh, and a few Clark Gables, but again, um, the Clark Gables would be those earlier films as well. So really, I guess this was a new experience for me, and I was going in at see- going into this movie, watching it the way that people would have been watching it, unfamiliar with someone like Clark Gable. So if maybe they'd heard of his reputation and seen his early movies, and you see this person who's completely different, in this film and also you know it was very impressive very impressive seeing Marilyn Monroe in a film like this yeah I think you're right about Clark Gable it's a very different role for him he's usually very suave we think of him as being sort of you know a social elite whereas here he's playing a homeless drifter who's caught up in some romantic idea of the old west and isn't contemporary and he's very vulnerable here Yeah, and I think you also think of Clark Gable as being in control, Uh, certainly in It Happened One Night, which I guess was his first, his biggest film to that point. uh, He he was in control of that narrative, and again, in Gone with the Wind, he was a very strong figure as well. Um, Whereas uh, in The Misfits, he is a little bit uh, neutered by his love for Marilyn, and ultimately a little bit, I guess, um, changed by her, which is something that you don't usually see from his characters, or at least didn't in those reputable films that he made early on. And he's the only character that really changes. Yeah, I mean, I think they all have their journeys, um, and I think they all have emotional changes throughout the movie, largely against their own will. Uh, You know, you see these characters who are pretty, I guess in a stupid sense, they're set in their ways, but they do change emotionally through the film. Cass, um, what about you? You saw this film many years ago, didn't you? Yeah, I saw it when I was a teenager, when I was trying to see as many Marilyn Monroe films as I could. <laughs> so I remember when I first saw it, I must be, I don't know, maybe 15 or something like that, or 16. And um, I was confused by it. Like I, I liked it, but it felt so out of place from everything else I was watching from the 60s or 50s at that time. And obviously because of, um, you know, Marilyn's filmography to that point you know or surrounding that was very very different you know with a lot of comedies and um you know she was brilliant in those and so when I watched this it was in that context and I remember certainly not thinking it was a bad film or anything like that I kind of was intrigued by it but I I couldn't lean into it as much somehow it sort of felt a bit like oh I was struggling a bit but yeah, re-watching it for this podcast I had a very different experience of it. And I don't know if that's a reflection of me or a reflection of the time at which I was watching it. I, I don't know about you, but I sort of feel a bit voyeuristic watching it. It's sort of that feeling of kind of really seeing someone. And I think I, I feel that for the Clark Gable character, the Eli Wallet character as well, like this sense that 
gosh, like they're really putting everything out there in a way that feels quite invasive you know from my perspective I feel like gosh I'm really seeing them and in probably a way in which they you hadn't seen them exposed in that way before and so it it felt very I felt very close to them in watching this and very empathetic to their experiences I just got off the plane I'm not too late am I just give me five minutes after two years five minutes isn't such a lot having that's all you want me that's all please I'm not blaming you it's I, I never looked at any different. I just don't believe in the whole thing anymore. Chip, I understand. I understand. You what... don't understand. You're not there, Raymond. If I'm going to be alone, I want to be by myself. I think a lot of people probably who saw the film initially or a lot of people who don't like the film maybe look at it as a little bit like an indulgent acting class because obviously it's very plotless and the characters are written to – they're written for actors to act the way that United Artists tried to sell the film. You know, you, they would have, people would have gone in thinking that they were going to see The Searchers or something like that, and instead they get this downbeat movie, plotless and very sad. And, and the film evokes death. Arthur Miller said this is about life viewed from the lip of the grave. Because it's not like they're all lost and then they're all found or they're all lonely and then they all connect. It's kind of, it doesn't give you any of that relief at all. And in that sense, I think it was massively ahead of its time in that it didn't give uh, the audience that relief and it was okay with that. Luke, you spoke about, uh, was it Paula Strasberg? Yeah. What, What dramatic roles did Marilyn Monroe do before The Misfits? Well, she did Niagara, Bus Stop. Don't Bother to Knock. Don't bother to knock, yeah. She uses her sexuality a lot in, like, even in Niagara. A seductive yeah. sort of victim or villain, yeah. And she, it's certainly not disguised here either. It's used by the film. And it's part of her angst, isn't it? It's, it's part of what um, makes her, yeah, a tragic character. Do you feel like she gets a bit of a social justice platform in this film as well? The film's climactic murderer's speech, it, it is a little bit of a social justice platform for Marilyn. That's a really interesting shot because, you know, most of the Misfits is used, he uses mid shots. We get a lot of shots of Marilyn's body, her, her bust line, um, her, her bottom, uh, you know, the, the ping pong scene is very much about Marilyn's body and watching Marilyn's body. But uh, in that final scene where she's just screaming at them, she just becomes a dot And so we don't get the distraction of the body. We just get those words, which are, they're condemning words, but they're also words about her pain. We can actually see her by not seeing her because we're not distracted by the light, the beauty, the sexuality. a really interesting clever choice of Houston's to sort of hold off on giving us any wide shots. I know Arthur Miller had a big problem with that. Arthur Miller wanted more wide shots. Yeah, he wanted the desolateness of the desert, the the deadness of it, to be better exploited, um, which Houston chose not to do. I think Marilyn's got a good kind of balance between empathy and strength in this film so there's a lot of empathy when she's uh, one scene is Luke you and I watched it last night where she's listening to Guido's talk about her his wife who's now deceased but there's also strength she's not she's not swayed by the things that Gay says often she she will teach him so she's got um like there's an element of stand by your man just as much as there is that element of teaching well what do you do with yourself just live how do you just live? Well, you start by going to sleep. You get up when you feel like it. You scratch yourself. You fry yourself some eggs. You see what kind of a day it is. Throw stones at a can. Whistle. I know what you mean. She's almost somebody who who can't bear the sadness of the external world, who who isn't strong enough for it. Yet at the same time, there's this kind of 
inner strength that comes out in that scene we're talking about where she finally lets go. But throughout the film, I find her to be almost not implausible, but I find her position to be implausible. In the context of the horse wrangling, I think that it's less ludicrous what Marilyn is saying because I believe that the film shows through that whole sequence that that kind of lifestyle is 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 over. Horse wrangling is a dead industry. You've got to look at it in those contemporary terms as well, and I think it's a little less radical what she's saying when you do that. And I think the film does a good job of also creating Gay as this character who is uh, stuck in time. He's got his um, beliefs. Nothing changes that. Uh, and then along comes Marilyn and things start to change that for the first time in his life. I think the scene of him wrangling that final horse is really powerful because a lot of the people, a lot of the men in this movie are hanging on to this old school masculine ideal of like, you know, the horse riding man that lives off the land. And that's the only way they know how to be men. And so when Gay is hanging on to that stallion at the end, it's him trying to hang on to himself. Mm. It's like that last ditch effort to sort of hang on. But finally he has to let it go. I think in 1961, it probably wasn't as touching as it is now because I think everybody was at that point was quite enchanted with urbanized living, modern appliance, uh, modern technology, home appliances. And we look at it now, and I think it resonates a bit more. What the hell you catch them for? Don't want nobody making up my mind for me, that's all. Damn them all. They changed it. Changed it all around. Smeared it all over with blood. I'm finished with it. It's like... Like roping a dream now. Yeah, I just gotta find another way to be alive, that's all. If there is one anymore. Well, I think that scene is, is particularly powerful because he actually finishes uh, tying up that horse before letting it go. Yeah. So it, it is kind of like, this is my last ride. That's that, That's how it feels. And it feels especially that way because it was Gable's last ride. <laughs> mm. yeah. 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 Circumstance added a lot to this movie. Didn't your wife dance? Not like you. She had no gracefulness. Why didn't you teach her to be graceful? You can't learn that. How do you know? I mean, how do you know? You see, she died and she didn't know how you can dance. To a certain extent... Maybe we're strangers. I don't feel like discussing my wife. Oh, don't be mad. I only meant that if you loved her, you could have taught her anything. Because we're all dying, aren't we? All the husbands and all the wives. Every minute. We're not teaching each other what we really know, are we? So what do we think about, you know, the idea of Miller having written this role of Rosalyn and it's so clearly patented on Marilyn herself. I have very mixed feelings about this like so when you watch the film and you know a bit about their relationship you know I I sort of feel like there's a couple of things it feels very personal obviously and like Miller was unafraid to expose her in in this way and, you know, I can understand how then the feeling would be, well, gosh, what a invasive thing to do to someone, you know, so it's so private and here it is laid bare on screen. And you can presume that there are a lot of judgments in that, right? Like with her, you know, where she's um, looking in the mirror the first time we meet her and she's practicing her lines for the court case. And you know that she was renowned for not ever knowing any of her lines. And you sort of think, is he, is this a, like such a direct stab at her, you know, is, is in putting this out there that she's just this ditzy kind of difficult to work with, airy, fairy, vague human, you know, and you sort of think, oh my gosh, this is, this person loves her, doesn't he? And how, how then is this, how he would choose to portray her is he so blind to what he's doing that he doesn't even realize that that's what he's doing and then there's this other lens which is does he just love all of those parts of her 
you know, and does he just see them as all human and beautiful in their imperfection and fragility and why do we um, look down on those traits, you know, in the way that we do, whereas he may have simply seen them as symptoms of her anxiety and what the system has done to her. Maybe they need to be highlighted for those reasons and understood that scene that you point out where she's by the dressing one for me is very meta and sticks out. The other one that sticks out is when Guido opens up the cupboard door and sees the glamour photos of Marilyn and she keeps pushing the door closed as if to say, no, I'm not that person. I'm this person now. I'm the serious actress. Yeah. And that feels as well like a little bit of a, is is it is Arthur Miller kind of making a joke here or... Look, I think you're right. I think he was a, an author that always searched for the truth, like all good authors do. We know that one of the reasons the Miller-Munro romance fizzled so quickly was because after they got married, I think they went to England to shoot to Prince and the Showgirl, and he went with Marilyn. And while she was there, she found some writing that he'd done on her that was very confronting and painful. Um, and it's actually portrayed in that movie – with Michelle Williams that she finds these, this writing, no one actually knows what the writing was. Like we haven't, it hasn't been saved, but it was just some journaling that Miller had done. And that was sort of the first chink in their marriage. You know, um, she, she, she looked at it as a betrayal, as much of a betrayal as, as you can have in a marriage. And so then the misfits feels like some sort of weird extension of that. (laughs) And for her to agree to do it is, 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 amazing but I'm really glad she did because as you say this movie is a totally different kind of Marilyn Monroe I think she's almost note perfect I think there's a couple of scenes where she isn't the performances aren't flawless I think Gable's performance is and I think Cliff's performance is and so I one scene that always um I don't love, but I do love, is is when um, Clark Gable's drunk and um, calling after, you know, his his son. Um, and it is Marilyn in that scene that feels off to me, as in too melodramatic. And I do wonder if it's because of, in contrast to Clark Gable, I don't know, you know, if that, that's what makes it sort of stick out to me because I just think he is so good. yeah. And it's so and such a departure from from his normal roles, and she comes in. And it sort of feels like a bit like oh, like you know, in some you know, it just feels too much, or she's almost like they're in competition. Well, she screams like he's fallen off a building. Yeah, he's just fallen <laughs> off the hood of a car. It's interesting to see the difference between the acting styles, though, and and you know, Montgomery Cliff represents his his inclusion in this movie represents a different era. And what do you mean, sorry? Like Montgomery Cliff was. You know, the Hollywood studio system, way more so than most people. He was a product of that. Are you talking about Gable or Clift? Uh, sorry, Clark Gable, yeah. Yeah, sorry. I've always had a really difficult time coming up with the words to describe the period during which this movie was made. Because you do have the golden age of Hollywood in the 30s and the 40s. And you have the new Hollywood, the independent era coming in in the late 60s. And that gap in the middle, it's not so well defined. And this is kind of the perfect film for that moment. Do you feel like when they were making the film that they knew how confusing it would be to audiences of that time? I don't think so. (laughs) Because it really is more of a psychodrama than anything, really. I don't think people knew how to process it. Certainly if you send an audience member in with the expectation, they're going to have a rousing fun time. And then you've got this downbeat, talky, dark, depressing movie about dying. This is coming, especially in the era of like Lawrence of Arabia and the bridge on the river Kwai. I mean, those are genre defying epics that kind of work on every level. Um, So whatever you go there for, you're going to find whoever goes there to see those movies, you're going to find something to enjoy about it, Um, whether it be the interpersonal relationships, whether it be the the sheer action, the drama and the misfits is I don't don't know what it is, but it is (laughs) it is like a subversion of those while trying to also kind of fit into that. And the other thing is that Breakfast at Tiffany's came out this same year. An audience must have just been like, what happened? Marilyn was meant to be in Breakfast. (laughs) And instead she's in this dark black and white film, which is not especially romantic, definitely not funny. And of course, you know, Breakfast ended up grossing three times as much as The Misfits. Was Marilyn supposed to be in Breakfast at Tiffany's? 
Well, Truman Capote wanted her to be and was vocal about it. Right. But they're two good representations of uh, alienation. Uh, Even Breakfast at Tiffany's deals with that theme very well. Breakfast at Tiffany's is really about a main character who remains completely detached in order to stay emotionally and physically safe. Mm. And that's what everyone's doing in Nevada. You know, that's what Thelma Ritter's doing, Clark Gable, Purse. We see how they've got all these broken relationships. Purse with his mother, um, Gay with his children, Eli Wallach with his, his dead wife who died because, you know, he didn't have a spare. It's dealing with the same subject, but in a totally different way. And Breakfast at Tiffany's has the hopefulness at the end. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, look, I would disagree that The Misfits has none. I think it has some. I think the, the last scene is quite beautiful and hopeful. Yeah. Okay, if there could be one person in the world, a child who could be brave from the beginning... I was scared to when you asked me, but I'm not so much now, are you? No. How do you find your way back in the dark? Just head for that big star straight on. The highway's under it. It'll take us right home. It's strange that audiences didn't connect as well with it, because, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people that think that anything is better than wages. What do you think about Eli Wallach in the film? Because he he's very different from Gay and Purse. We have three men who are clearly interested in Rosalind, who are pursuing her. But I feel like Guido's or Guido's way of pursuing her feels a lot more hostile and aggressive. Yeah, I would I would agree. I think there's an air of menace about him and you feel a little bit of pity for him. Boy, you know... Dropping a bomb is like telling a lie. Makes everything so quiet. Pretty soon you don't hear anything, you don't see anything. Not even your wife. Now the difference is I see you. You're the first one I ever really saw. Please, Guido, don't kill us. How do you get to know somebody, kid? I can't make a landing and I can't get up to God either. Help me. I never said help me in my life. I was just going to say, he just feels like more immature compared to the the other characters. There's something about him that is sort of representing that, just less along the journey, you know, sort of representing kind of an older, more immature school of thought around relationships. Yeah, and even though he has a lot of screen time in the movie, he is definitely overshadowed. Um, by Gable, Cliff, and Munro. I also really like the way that Miller is constantly uh, finding ways to just put these little flashes of trauma into the dialogue. And it's often things that are never referred to again. So, you know, we get a couple of lines about Guido saying about how he was a, a bomber pilot in World War II. And in that same scene, Rosalind makes this easily missed bit of dialogue where she says, Um, a girlfriend of mine got smashed up in a car. She had black hair. And so there's all these like bits of these people and their traumas just constantly butting up against each other. Yeah. And it's so true what you say about it being missed because I think that's quite purposeful, isn't it? It's kind of like we're trying to connect, we're trying to connect, we're trying to know each Mm. other. And for some reason it slips away. We're not focused on it. We're worried about something else, but we just can't quite connect that scene um, in the car where he's sort of threatening her by going so fast and she he says, just say hello, Guido, because the truth is that they're not connecting. And when he says, I just want you to say hello, what he's really saying is, I want you to look at me. I want you to think of me, consider me, see me. And a lot of the dialogue is like that, where it kind of almost slips into abstract, surrealist kind of dialogue. But uh, Arthur Miller was a literary mm. author. He was. You know, if you go into a movie written by a literary author, then you've got to expect some of this stuff. You've got to expect some of this subtext that he included in the movie that it made it to the screen is in itself pretty remarkable. Because mm, it's actually quite surrealist then, isn't it? It's not a realistic film. Parts of it definitely are surrealist, yeah. But then you'll get this horse wrangling scene, which is so realistic. Mm. Yeah. Who do you think is the most touching character for you in the film? Uh, for me, it's Clark Gable. 
I can't help but think of the phone booth scene, Montgomery Clift, and always sticks in my head as a very touching scene and also one of the more realistic scenes in the film. For me, it, it is Purse as well. I think I have more sympathy or I'm more touched by Purse because he doesn't have a lot of self-awareness, whereas Gable does and he, he can get there, whereas you feel like Purse is just this horribly battered person. He was obviously fighting, bullfighting, and had been latched onto by his girlfriend and a couple of mates. And then when he had this disastrous fall and ended up in hospital, he never saw them again. And before that, we know that he was kicked off of his own property because his father died, his mother remarried, and then that man turned around and offered purse wages. So he's someone who's been very exploited, exploited for money. He's, um, he's given his body to sort of have relationships and make friends and... Yeah, and that phone booth scene is just so touching because he's trying to manage it by closing the door so that they don't hear certain things and then hear other things. And, you know, it's and it's hopeless. They're all just sitting in the car. They can hear every word he's saying. Hmm. Say hello to Frida for me, will you? And to Victoria? Yeah, and to Uncle George? Okay, say hello to him too. No, no, my, my it, it, it just slipped my mind, that's all. Well, okay, I'm saying it now. Ma, you married him, I didn't, so say hello to him. Oh, sorry. Uh, listen, listen. Uh, maybe I'll call you Christmas time? Okay. Hello? Hello? I mean, just building on that, I have to, I have to do a little bit about, I guess, the um, Rosalind character too, in the sense that I, I can't sort of say that I didn't connect with her. Like, I think um, there were actually probably it was the sort of thing where you just feel like a lot of what she does and says, it feels like she's sort of torn a bit between, you know, how people want to take care of her and, you know, um, are drawn to her and, you know, they give she gives people kind of happiness and hope and, you know, joy, even if it is in her mind only for a very short period of time. And so then I can, I sort of get this sense from her that she feels like she owes that or she should give that and not withhold that from, from the people in her life. But then equally, it's so frustrating. It's so draining. It's exhausting. Is that all I can give? Is it just my physical presence? Is that all I can sort of contribute? Um, and as you say, it's often just in her eyes or her tremors or underneath a line. Yeah, I didn't want to take away from, yeah, how impactful that is and, um, yeah, how powerfully she she exhibits all of those things and, and how well she does that really in terms of, her transition through to the to the end scene where she is finally, you know, shouting across the very sparse desert and, and it appears very small and we just hear her, you know, we just get her energy rather than her physicality. I really love the little moment where she gets out of the car to untether the dog and he's looking at how she's kind of playing with the dog. And it's sort of in that moment that he makes a decision that wherever they're headed, they're headed there together. They're giving presents for divorces now? Why not? On the anniversary of our divorce, my husband always sends me one potted yellow rose. And it'll be 19 years in July. <laughs> of course, he never did pay me the alimony. But I wouldn't want to put a man out, you know? His heart's not in it. I was really confused when I first started watching it because when Thelma Ritter's character says, this is my 77th witness divorced, I'm like, what the hell's going on here? Why is she witnessing so many divorces? So I didn't realize that. In Nevada, divorce was like a booming industry because at the time in America, divorces were fault-based and they were heard in open court. So people from all over the country would always sneak down to Reno, live in a hotel for six weeks and get a quiet divorce without any attention. But Isabel, which is Thelma Ritter's character, she really represents the industry that grew around this chink in the legal system. And so, you know, hotels opened, restaurants, bars, brothels. Obviously, you've got a lot of deeply unhappy people going to this place and they do want to drink and socialize and forget themselves. And I like the idea that she's just been leasing out this room to all of these damaged women, one after the other, and that Rosalind is just this one's right now. I also like that she's joyous and she's even sentimental about divorce, which really is quite demented. You know, she talks about getting the rose from her husband every year of the divorce. It's very absurd. But I like the idea that um, there's this 
celebration of withdrawal from others, of detachment, and that sort of becomes the entire film's through line. Yeah, it's kind of this misconception that you're free, whereas it's kind of the cost of freedom, I guess, or, yeah. And at the beginning of the film, we see it as freedom, and by the end of the film, we see it as a trap. Did you just come up with that? Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? Yeah. It was you. I bounced off you. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. One part of the movie I really like is when Gay tells her that she's the saddest girl he's ever met. And she says, most men say, I'm happy. I'm the happiest girl. And he goes, no, that's just because you make them feel happy. And apparently that was a real exchange between Miller and Monroe on the first time they met. Hmm. At the start of the movie, it's uh, Eli Wallach that first makes contact with Marilyn, isn't it? Uh, out of out of the two men. Yep. I mean, clearly he likes her. What? Who wouldn't? Um, but Gay comes along and Eli Wallach is kind of pushed to the side. But it also adds to, I guess, the reading of the start of the movie and Gay's character that he may be a little lecherous. Well, I did find that a bit um, icky initially mm. when he was sort of very touchy with her and stuff because also Rosalind comes across as the most fragile woman in the world. Like she's going to go to bed with whoever looks at her at this point. Yeah. Mm. And he is so much older. But I think um, he redeems himself when um, he tries to hold her and she says, I don't like you that way. And he says, well, you know, don't be disheartened. Give it a give it a bit of time or something like that. Yeah. And I, I love that his reaction is so gentle, um, even though obviously he's crestfallen. But Rosalind is, is involuntarily kissed and touched so often in this movie. Yeah. And even when she's having that, that scene that you showed me last night where her and Guido are dancing, I mean, they're very close in that scene. I mean, it's uncomfortably close. There is a lot of kind of open sexual exploration experimenting happening between all of the different characters i know it does actually feel like in that scene especially it feels like it could kind of progress into some kind of love triangle but i'm I'm glad it doesn't but uh, you know the film also does put i think by nature of having eli wallach have the first uh, contact sorry guido have the first contact with Rosalind, and then gay come along and kind of take over that situation it does put guido in his place as a supporting character as well thereafter where he plays that role with a little bit of menace it has uh i guess motive gay clearly has more qualities than he does more attractive qualities but because the race isn't over, he stays in the race mm. and just gets perpetually more and more aggravated that he's not higher up on her list of interests. I know. It's almost like she's chucking a few bones to three lonely lost dogs throughout this movie. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, there is this whole kind of, you know, beating of the chest kind of thing going on with these three men, you know, very kind of very competitive but their methodologies are all very different. We see some that are that are nicer than others. Would you therefore say that Get Gay is a very trusting person because he he tends to trust her being this close to these two men, despite having told both of these men or having demonstrated to both of these men that they're not to go there. Well, I think because Gay doesn't attach himself to anybody, it's easier to trust because because the parameters of your trust are so limited. You know, we see him saying goodbye to the the previous Roslyn at the train and then the new Roslyn comes in. So, you know, for him, it's going to be, I guess, I guess what he's after is so limited that he's not particularly worried. Mm. Strangely, only dates people named Roslyn. (laughs) (laughs) He never really has this vibe of um, ownership of her. Well, uh, I don't know. What do you expect to get out of it? I mean, 15 horses. I mean, like if there was a thousand or more, but... Just going all the way up there for 15, it kind of hits me sideways. I don't know. Well, better than wages, ain't it? Uh, anything's better than wages. Uh, well, like I said, it's difficult to put a word, a descriptive word to this uh, kind of time in Hollywood. It is for me anyway. I'm, you had these big directors like Alfred Hitchcock and David Lean who were making these films and the epic, which crosses so many genres, was, I guess, the big form of filmmaking. So, you know, a lot of period films and stuff. But also westerns were such a big form of filmmaking at this time as well. John Ford and so many other great directors. So I think the thematic content of this film, as well as the fact that, you know, the three stars were, you know, so close to death in the end, unknowingly, it points to this idea of the end of an era. So 
I mean, the film's set in this developing west of Nevada, which was booming in the 1950s. But it's, ironically, it's shown through the eyes of a cowboy, which is an occupation that was becoming so rare. And, you know, cowboys in the sense of people who tend to farm animals, they still exist today. But specifically talking about gaze progression, which was, you know, traveling the open wilds and herding up Mustang, that does not exist anymore. And like I said before, you know, there's fences around farms, so there's less livestock roaming around free. You know, the film does a really good job of showing that Gay's livelihood is coming to an end. His industry won't be around for much longer, and really, it's not around now, because that's shown by, you know, these expectations of these huge herds of horses, and it comes up that how many horses are there? Four or five? Of course, motivated by Rosalind, he makes this decision to end his career, essentially. And I know that uh, when we were originally talking about this, Cass talked about the old Hollywood Western aesthetic. But even at that point, Westerns were period films, and The Misfits is a contemporary story. And I think that makes the dynamic of The Misfits very interesting, because we have Clark Gable at the end of his career telling a story about an occupation at the end of its usefulness. So he's a man in this foreign place, out of step with time. And if you just look at some of the westerns that were being made, like Stagecoach was an early one. That was set in 1880. Then you move forward, Red River was 1867. In the 50s, High Noon was the same time. Shane was 1889. The Searchers was 1868. And then you move forward after The Misfits. Even The Good, The Bad and The Ugly was set in 1862. The Wild Bunch was set in 1913. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kit was 1899. Um, John Huston had previously made Treasure of the Sierra Madre, that was set 25 years before it was made. On the other hand, distinct from those movies, The Misfits embraces its contemporary setting, and that is seen especially through its liberal Nevada location, where all of these new laws are just taking effect, and people are uh, exploiting those laws. And also, this is one of my favourite things about the movie, is this kind of difference between the cowboy mythology represented by Gay and Purse. So Purse is what we would think of as a Las Vegas cowboy, a show cowboy, the entertainment kind. He's riding in rodeo events such as the Bull and Bronco rides. And it seems like Gay has no issue with this style of cowboy, but that's not what he is. He's a working cowboy. Um, And it's ironic in a sense that Gay's style of cowboying would fade into non-existence and Purse's rodeo cowboys would become even more popular throughout the 70s and 80s and they eventually became recognised as professional sports that began to get televised. I looked up um, the classification of certain westerns around this period, and there was the revisionist western and the neo-western. They were subgenres of the western. And the, uh, the latter of these is reflected as reflecting the traditions of the western film genre, but set in the contemporary American west. And I'd say The Misfits fits into that. Uh, the revisionist Western is defined as a subgenre that subverts the standard format or theme of the Western, including morally ambiguous storylines without clear heroes, where the concept of right and wrong became blurred in a world where actions could no longer be said to be good or bad. I think it fits into that as well, but maybe, I guess that's a little more specific. The film deals with its genre, and Luke, what did you say at the start of the movie that this was classified as genre-wise? A rousing action-adventure Western romance? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, you can chuck drama into that as well. It's like, it's got a little bit of everything, but looking at it purely from a Western standpoint, it doesn't fit a lot of the Western tropes. So it's not a period film. It's not set solely in the West. It doesn't have long travels. It doesn't have a small town. It's very contemporary in its setting. Um, but it does still contain elements of the Western. But I think that plays really well in showing the difference between old and new. Yeah, I think it, it it's almost like a bit of a, we, we all love going to see the searches. We love the feeling that those sorts of movies give us. We love the um, operatic nature of them, you know, the 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 face-off between usually, it's usually a, a nasty bully and he's got all of his bullies and then, you know, the small people that are trying to hang on to something. I feel like this film's almost like a bit of a cold splash of water. No, that time is dead. This is what this is what remains of that time, and really, it's all just about saying goodbye and watching something fade away. I think the refrain that is just said all the time that 
you know, anything is better than wages is really important to this movie. I think um, in a New York Times review of the screenplay, Herbert Mitgang wrote that that's their favourite remark when doing things to retain their freedom. And it kind of shows a disdain with the nine to five life, which was becoming the norm for everybody, women included, at this time. It's also about the fear that they have of losing themselves to the meaninglessness of capitalist society. But it helps cement their displacement because the world doesn't really have a place for people that don't want to abide by those rules. And I think it's ironic that in order to be free himself, Gay's profession has him hunting down wild and free animals. He's literally roping and tying them down to one spot. So I think that's a good kind of reflection of how that, you know, that character doesn't really have a place in this new world. Yeah, and it's amazing. Like, I love that that scene where he talks to Rosalind about, well, I haven't changed. You know, back when I was wrangling horses, a lot of them were sold to kids. They were really good, right? you know, first riding ponies. But now there's no market for that. And so now they make horse food and horse food is the price of my freedom. You know, I haven't changed anything that I'm doing. It's what happens after that. And he says to her, it's like when you were dancing in a nightclub, you just wanted to dance, but that got changed into something else. Suddenly you were being leered at. It was a sexual thing. He said, but all you're doing is just the same as what you've always been doing. Uh, and, and I think there's a real poignancy and truth to, to those to that speech that he gives her. We never kidded you and I. Now I'm telling you, I don't want to lose you. But you've got to help me a little bit though, because I can't put on that this is all as bad as you make it. All I know is everything else is wages. I hunt these horses to keep myself free, so I'm a free man. That's why you like me, isn't it? I liked you because you are kind. I haven't changed. Yes, this changes it. Honey, a kind man can kill. No, he can't. Damien, do you want to tell us about how the film performed? The Misfits was released on February 1st, 1961. The news of Gable's death still fresh in the public's mind. But Arthur Miller and producer Frank E. Taylor plugged the film prior to its release, with Miller admitting he was pleased with the results and Taylor going further, calling it the ultimate motion picture. Miller would later express indifference about the movie, particularly Houston's heavy use of medium shots that made little use of the desolate desert locations. From the outset, it was clear that United Artists didn't know what to make of the movie or how to sell it. The original trailer takes most of the footage from the Mustang experience with quick cuts to romantic snippets or to Marilyn playing ping pong or walking away from the beach in a bikini. Original posters included three photographs, two close-ups of Gable and Clift and one full-bodied shot of Marilyn. The most obvious effect of United Artists' intention is probably in the tagline, it shouts and sings with life, explodes with love. It reads less like a tagline and more like a review attributed to no one. Besides, The Misfits isn't a sweeping action romance western. It's a talky film about deeply unhappy people dying in the desert. United Artists shot themselves in the foot. By failing to fulfil the promise made to audiences by advertisers, poor word of mouth and unenthusiastic notices quickly sank the film, which would finish on a disappointing $4.1 million gross. Bosley Crowther wrote, There is a lot of absorbing detail in it, but it doesn't add up to a point. Of the three characters, he said, They are amusing to be with, for a little while anyhow, but they are shallow and inconsequential. Monroe he described as blank and unfathomable, and wrote of the Mustanging sequence, Houston lets his cameras show so much of the pitiful plight of these creatures that the screen is full of shock and the audience is left in breathless horror until she persuades Gable to let the horses go. Pauline Kael was also unimpressed with a few concessions, an erratic, sometimes personal in the wrong way and generally unlucky picture that is often affecting, she wrote. Monroe has never worked her vulnerability so fulsomely before. The film has an uncomfortable element of fake psychodrama. She's pushy about her own sensitivity. If there is a right tone to play the Miller script, Houston doesn't find it. But the film has been reappraised over the years and is now regarded as a minor classic. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 97% fresh rating and a 7.2 on IMDb. There's a general consensus that it contains career best performances from Gable and Monroe, with an elegaic screenplay from Miller and a darkly romantic score by Alex North. Time Out summarised the initial reaction in 2015, saying rarely has a film's content been so overshadowed by its context. 
In the Phidon published book The Misfits, which includes a collection of Magnum photographs taken on the set, Serge Tubiana writes, The Misfits is the story of an impossible dream set in an America where the great myths have died. But what if he died? It would be terrible. Honey, we all gotta go sometime, reason or no reason. Dying's as natural as living. A man who's too afraid to die is too afraid to live. Right? We know that Arthur Miller is, you know, a genius, I suppose, in his in, in his own right. But um, just when you then think about how relevant it is now compared to where it was then and how just kind of independent-minded he must have been and so irreverent to socialised expectations you know what I mean surely he must have on some sense known how difficult commercial audiences would find that content at that time nothing about it has dated you're right he's 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 terribly good I wonder if he's just so good at holding the mirror up because it's so funny that people reviewed this film as people that you cannot connect with or relate to because I just feel like it is us like it is absolutely us and more so us now and even in the context of the pandemic where people are lost and searching for meaning and anti-capitalist society and you know all those things are coming up now for people as they kind of wonder about what they've been spending most of the hours of their life doing (laughs) and you know we are kind of all in Nevada now kind of feels like you know um we're all stuck in Reno Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, should we uh, do the quiz? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll ask this first one for you, Cass. Houston and Clift worked on a film after The Misfits, which turned out to be a much less pleasant experience for both of them. What was the movie? Don't know. Damien? No, I don't know. I feel like I might have known this two months ago. Clift was great on the Misfits set, knew all of his lines. Houston loved him, so he cast him as the lead in his next film as Sigmund Freud. Oh, Oh, yes. It was Freud. Uh, It was called Freud the Secret Passion, but they clashed awfully on that set. Have you seen it? Yeah, I have. It's it's interesting enough. I don't think it's great. That one has dated quite a bit because obviously psychotherapy in the early 60s has changed a lot. Yes. Damien, what other name actor was considered for Gable's part? Cary Grant. It was Robert Mitchum. I like to guess Cary Grant for everything I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Cass, which actor sustained an injury before shooting started while he was training to wrangle horses? Clark Gable? No, it was Montgomery Clift. He injured his nose. Oh, Monty. So far, you've both done terribly. Yep. Damien, why was shooting on The Misfits delayed four months initially? For four months or four months? For months. It was... Delayed by four Delayed months. Delayed by four months. The shooting. Um, a tropical thunderstorm. <laughs> was it because Marilyn was in rehab? Do tropical thunderstorms last four months? Oh, no, this one destroyed the set. <laughs> <laughs> no, Cass, it was um, an actor's strike. Oh. Yeah, that was my second guess, but I, I really believed in the tropical thunderstorm. Well, you both got zero, so I think we need to probably put this all on ice, come back in a couple of weeks and (laughs) re-record. Too embarrassing. (laughs) All right, guys, um, let's do our final thoughts. Cass, you go first. I would give this film four stars out of five. My takeaway is that it is, yeah, a a beautiful film to watch. I, you know, I do think it's uh, not not the most uplifting film, so um, you know I think you have to go to it with you know in that mood and ready to have that experience. Uh, the thing I take away from the film is just how vulnerable each of these characters and actors are, and how unusual it is to see that level of willingness to just be who you are. And you know, um, there's no kind of bravado or anything like that, which I think was more typical. So to see these actors kind of being very you know, um, not your typical masculine character and, and you know, um, Marilyn not being sort of ditzy and funny and it just sort of, yeah, I think it's just such a great insight into what they were capable of, showed how much potential they had that was probably not fully realised throughout their whole career. Um, uh, so, yeah, a very special film in, in that sense. Uh, I give The Misfits four and a half stars. It's Part Hollywood star picture and part curiosity at this point. Feels obviously, as we've talked, very different to anything that Marilyn Monroe had done before. So it's obscure in that respect. And fans of her work 
I think, wouldn't necessarily seek out this film, but I have also never heard any Marilyn fans say that they didn't love it when they did eventually see it. Uh, I would say that, you know, fans of the golden age of Hollywood should seek it out if they haven't seen it, because it's very much a commentary on that era just by virtue of starring Clark Gable at the end of his career. And he was such an important player in the 30s that seeing him here almost provides some kind of closure. I talked before about how I struggle to find a term to describe this period of Hollywood, which I would suggest is probably the mid-50s to the late 60s. And The Misfits embodies that that lack of clarity that I feel. It slots in really well between the downfall of the studio system and the imminent rise of the independent picture. And I just wonder if there's ever been a more appropriate title for a movie. Yeah, I agree with you both. I gave it four and a half stars. I think that it's uh, a really, like you say, Cass, a, a beautiful film to look at. I also think it's a beautiful film to listen to. You can't really watch the film without being hyper aware of the fact that it's it's Marilyn's sort of last hurrah. It's Gable's last hurrah. It was one of the last great Montgomery Cliff performances that we got. He he had a supporting role in Judgment at Nuremberg after this, which was quite good, but it was very short. He has a lot more to do here. Uh, and obviously it's, it's backed by a beautiful supporting cast. John Huston's a very steady, stable director. It is really downbeat, but I think it's, I think it's a really beautifully composed film. All right, guys. Well, that concludes this episode of Celluloid Junkies. Please join us next month. We are going to be talking about Gus Van Sant's 1995 black comedy, To Die For. Very exciting. Love Gus Van Sant. That's a good one. Surprised you didn't pick Elephant. It's probably not the Van Sant film you would have picked, though, Damien, is it? It's definitely not the Van Sant film I would have picked. What would you have picked? Elephant? Private Idaho? One of those two, yes. Well, sorry, beat you to it. Yeah, you did. All right, guys, I think we're done. Thank you. Celluloid Junkies.